How can Christians live out their faith in the church, the family, and the government? Find out in the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for November, Faith That Shines in the Culture. It's written by regular guest Dr. Alfonso Espinosa. Learn more about Faith That Shines in the Culture at issuesetc.org or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. Faith That Shines in the Culture, the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for November. I had a professor once who said, I decided that I always wanted to be original. And then I discovered that to be original in Christian theology means to become heretical. If God does not tell us, then we don't need to know. We shouldn't know. And so we we go with what God has given. What are the Ten Commandments? What are my neighbor's needs? When you realize that in the sight of God, your sins are gone and you are set free from them, that changes you from the inside out and makes you want to do the very will of God. The gospel is enough natural motivation to love the Jewish people and to look at them as that older brother who remain outside the party like in the prodigal son and to identify with the father who staying outside and pleading with them to come in. Babies? Babies! Love? Love! Listening? Ning. Two. Two. Issues. Issues. Etc. Shredda. With. With. Their. Dear. Mommies. Mommies. Like the doctrine of justification, Scripture's teaching on sanctification, it has undergone, well, some pretty serious misinterpretations. There are some Lutherans who are allergic to sanctification. They think it somehow undoes justification. There are others who seek sanctification in all the wrong places, looking inward for that work of the Holy Spirit. So how should we rightly understand sanctification, especially in light of where God has put us, in our families, in the state, and in the church? Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in live on this Thursday afternoon, November the 9th. Joining us to talk about sanctification in the family, the state, and the church, Dr. Alfonso Espinosa. He's senior pastor of St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Irvine, California, and author of the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for November, Faith That Shines in the Culture. Dr. Espinosa, welcome back. Thank you, Todd. So great to be back. Always great to hear your voice. Your view of Christian sanctification has changed. How so? I started off as a uh, pietist. I had good intentions, Todd, but I was uh, conducting a constant spiritual navel-gazing or spiritual box-checking. That is to say, I was completely enveloped in looking within, checking my spiritual temperature, so to speak, my progress in my prayer life, my feeling of devotion, my intensity of the fruits of the Spirit. And by doing that, I was completely looking within myself and was guilty of what Luther had once diagnosed as swallowing the Holy Spirit feathers and all as he um, spoke against and wrote against the heavenly prophets. So what happened over time, by having some great theological professors around me, for example, like Rod Rosenblatt, Chuck Bansky, and others, was introduced to the Lutheran perspective and grew into that, which is understanding 
our sanctification not as something to be internalized, but something that we continue to look out upon in Christ as our sanctification. That is to say, within Lutheran theology, not only do we apply externos to our justification, seeing the Christ who justifies from without, but we continue to look from without and see the Lord Jesus Christ who comes to sanctify us as well. Uh, Paul makes that clear in 1 Corinthians one thirty that Christ is also our sanctification. Now, certainly, that includes, when that happens, an internal transformation, not that the sinful man is in any way, shape, or form changed. It's always there 100%. But we now have a born-again spirit, to use the language in John chapter 3. You say that the Christian delights in God's law, but only in response to Jesus, who fulfills the law for us. What do you mean by that? Well, let me give you the example from um, the Apology of the Augsburg Confession in Article 4, as it's discussing the good works of the Christian. And I, I love this description, Todd, as Melanchthon wrote in regards to our good works, that these are a battle of Christ against the devil. That is to say, according to the new man, we experience what we refer to in our Lutheran theology as the active righteousness of Christ. Christ is for us. He is also within us. The Johannine theology makes that very clear in the Gospel of John. And he works in and through his people. And so we, while we still battle within ourselves against the old man, the sinful nature, we also experience the new creation, as Paul refers to it, and uh, that is to say that that which is good is from God. And Christ himself, working through us, leads us to delight in his work in and through us as we give him all the glory. How do you respond to a few of our fellow Lutherans who say that God's law only accuses us of sin and nothing more? Well, it's certainly true that the law always accuses, and always means always. It's a constancy. But I think as we use that word always, we forget that always does not necessarily mean only. In fact, in this case, it doesn't mean only. Well, the law always accuses, like Semper Accusat, for the Christian who is now in Christo, in Christ, we also, at the same time, according to the new man, delight in the law of God. This is in response to Jesus who fulfilled the law for us. So in Christ, we're led to love the law of Christ. And according to the new man, we delight in keeping it, but certainly never saved by it because we've already been saved in Christ. But we know from 1 John 4, 21, God's holy word says, and this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And in other words, we shouldn't have a picture of God shaking his finger at us saying, now you got to love or else. It's not a matter of got to. Now it's a matter of get to as we live in Christ Jesus. We delight in his life in us, which leads us to love to live out his law. This is something we cover in our Lutheran confessions under the rubric of the third use of the law in the formula of Concord. What are the three estates? Todd, they're listed in different orders, depending on the source that you're reading in our, our Lutheran teaching, but they include the family estate, 
the church estate and the state estate. When we talk about the church estate in the three estates, we differentiate it from the two-kingdom system, which we also use in our Lutheran theology. In the two-kingdom model, the church is especially the pure church, the one holy Christian and apostolic church, Unisancta, pure and gives to us the grace of God in Christ Jesus, and it's all about the forgiveness of sins. When we switch over to estate talk, though, we look at all of the estates in our Lutheran theology as being representative of both the secular aspect and also the divine or spiritual aspect. So in the estate lingo, when we list church, we are especially interested in the local congregations, which are both secular, just think of council meetings that use Robert's Rules of Order and are abiding by city ordinances for our buildings, but also the divine aspect of the congregation where we meet as brothers and sisters in Christ to receive the means of grace. Furthermore, when we talk about state, it's important not to limit that simply to government. Government is a subset of the state. The state involves the broader society as a whole, but the three estates, family, church, and state. How do these three estates need one another? They're interlocked, and we're going by God's word. He is the one who has created these estates. He has appointed them in his holy word. And given that, we need them because God has ordained them. They're the ordinances of God, the mandates of God. They must be. (laughs) And whatever he says must be, then that is by its very nature something which is needed. But from a practical standpoint, we also see how they're needed in that our identities are interwoven in all of these estates. So when a woman in the Lord Jesus baptized in the name of Jesus, confessing the name of Christ and worshiping him in spirit and truth, goes out into the world, she may be a wife and mother who then goes to her congregation to abide in the holy vocation as member in the congregation who worships and encourages her fellow saints and participates in the work of the congregation reaching out to the community, and then goes out perhaps as a doctor conducting heart surgery. But in all of these cases, what she does not do is take off the various hats. She is always mother and wife. She is always member of the church, and she is always in her God-given vocation as, as a medical doctor. So we need these for proper identity, not only within ourselves, but in contributing to a healthy view of living in the world and how these estates are essential for the health of our land, of our very culture, which is why in the book we relate all of this to the speaking of the needs of the culture, faith that shines in the culture. You quote from Dr. Russell Don, he's president of Concordia University, Chicago. He says, America's fundamental problem is that we have lost sight of the first two estates. As a result, There are those who want to make the state the entire realm as the state encroaches upon family and church. What's his insight there? Yeah, just a 
incredible insight that came out of uh, my interviewing him for the second book. And as I mentioned in the current book, his statement really bothered me, Todd, but I knew he was right. His insight is that in our current culture in the United States of America, we have uh, an unhealthy emphasis upon the state. It's not to say that the state isn't important. It is vital. And we have a responsibility to be good citizens. However, there seems to be an abundance of preoccupation on the state to the extent we see the other estates of family and church being neglected and in decline and deterioration. And in many cases, we seem okay with that because the mindset of many is that we can go to the state to solve all of our problems. And so whenever we see this kind of imbalance, we are justifiably alarmed as uh, Dr. Don was expressing his alarm. I think his insight is tremendously on target and should indeed inspire us as Christians to actively do something about it, which is why this book was written. When and where is the Christian connected to Christ? The Christian is always connected to Christ, and the exciting thing is we are connected to Christ in all three estates constantly. So it's exciting, again, to maintain this proper view, as I said before, that the estates are always secular and always spiritual. And what runs through them, by the way, Todd, is what we refer to in our Lutheran theology as the fourth estate. It's not alongside the other three, but it's one that permeates the other three, which is the estate of love or the spiritual estate of the Christian. We are always connected to Christ and bring that love, that ministry of love, if you will, that spiritual estate into each of the three other estates. So within the family, Christ is in us, we are in him, in Christo, and Christ is working through us according to his command to live in holy vocation within the family and of course, that may be as a father, a husband, a child, etc., a parent, and Christ is connected, and we are connected to him, and we live out his will within the family. Same scenario as we shift over to the church, local congregation, and same scenario as we go over to the greater societal realm within the state. And what's so exciting about that is that that common fourth estate of love that agape love is always present, manifest in serving the neighbor, and as a result, understanding a cross that comes with that service. And that is where we share in the cross that Jesus refers to in Matthew 16, 24, that if uh, anyone would come after him, must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow him. And we experience that in all the estates, and that helps us to know who we are. 24-7 in Christ. We love because he first loved us, 1 John 4, 19. Dr. Alfonso Espinosa is our guest. We're talking about Christian sanctification in the family, the state, and the church. On that theme of light, what does Jesus mean when he says he is the light of the world? The Church's Music from the 20th Century the 17th century. 
The 11th century. The 8th century. The 4th century. The best of the church's music from the past 2,000 years. LutheranPublicRadio.org Where doctrine is life. You're listening to Issues Etc. Memorial Press's award-winning curriculum is used by homeschoolers all over the world. Their classical Christian education materials provide everything you need for kindergarten through 12th grade, including books, guides, lesson plans, and instructional videos. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 at checkout. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. Two millennia ago, Pilate uttered one of the most profound questions that we still ask in the modern era. What is truth? Many today would say that truth like beauty is in the eye of the beholder or perhaps in the heart. But that's not what truth is for the Christian people of God. Truth is found in Christ alone. To learn more about the Lutheran view of truth, pick up the November issue of The Lutheran Witness. Visit cph.org witness or our website witness.lcms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Discussing Christian sanctification in the family, the state, and the church. Dr. Alfonso Espinosa is our guest, author of The Issues Etc., a book of the month for November, Faith That Shines in the Culture. He's also a graduate of Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Find out about studying for the vocations of pastor or deaconess at ctsfw.edu or by calling 1-800-481-2155. Forming Servants in Jesus Christ to Teach the Faithful, Reach the Lost, and Care for All, Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. Espinosa, what does Jesus mean when he says that he is the light of the world? Well, not only is he the creator of all light, not only is he the one who spoke in Genesis 1-3, let there be light, he is the word who speaks, the, the God who speaks into existence, but he is within himself the very source of light, even to the extent that he is light. In the scriptures, light and life are often paired together. To call him the light of the world is to call him the life of the world, or simply God, who gives life and light to all men. Here, in the discussion of the relationship between the vocations we have and the estates we live in, He is a light that shines upon us, especially vertically in the singular call that we receive when we were baptized into his name most holy, being made children of God, baptized child of God. Now, he shines upon us by coming to us through the word which is contained in the water of holy baptism. We are at that point then united to him, the light of the world, which is especially known through the forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation. Remember the salvation referring to our being rescued from sin, the world, and the devil. All of these realities come to light 
in that we know exactly what that means. We are freed from the shackles of sin and death. We have crossed over from death to life. How does that happen? The light of the world who has put his word within us, and now we know through Christ our new identity, the new creation. So it's interesting to me, Todd, and really is part of the inspiration of this book besides Dr. Russell Don's quote, that in John chapter 8, Jesus says that he is the light of the world. And in Matthew chapter 5, he speaks to his disciples, calling them, saying to them, you are the light of the world. Well, which is it? It's Jesus' light of the world, disciples' light of the world. But yes, both are true at the same time. So we rejoice to know him as our light, our life, through his word, through his sacrament, and his light then permeates through us, through the good works he's called us to. Talk about the darkness of this world. Yeah, we have to talk about the darkness of the world. Otherwise, there's no point in writing this book. If it is indeed true that the family and church estates are being assaulted and diminishing and in decline and deterioration, and it is, no newsflash here, then we see this as the marks of darkness. Darkness is, just as God's work is associated with, with light, darkness is associated with the works of the devil and sin. When the works of the devil and the demonic come upon the family estate or any estate, it's always marked by destruction. Darkness, Satan, the demonic, want to destroy. They want to destroy consciences that we would no longer trust in the gospel but they also want to destroy our families, bring various conflict so that we would live in hatred and unforgiveness. And of course, that spills over into the church, so we'd be marked by controversy and division and infighting. This is the darkness that seeks to pull us away from Christ and our faith. So to do something about it, we are called in many and various ways, not to return evil for evil, but overcome evil with good, and that is to get back to Christ, our light, and to live according to his life, to shine his light in this world that desperately needs it, especially within the family and especially within the church. Now, when that happens, then we can properly go out to shine the light in the third estate of the state, because that's when we achieve proper balance. And when that happens, the darkness in the world is addressed efficaciously because we are shining Christ's light upon it. How does reflecting Christ's light make us light in the world too? Well, here again, we're going to emphasize that while there is to some degree a legitimacy to talk about imitation and, and learning by example— be it through um, leaders uh, of the faith, we are to emulate them and, and imitate them, especially our Lord Jesus Christ. That, however, is not the emphasis in our Lutheran theology. Rather, our emphasis is uh, Christ's act of righteousness, his life in and through his people. So when we understand in the vertical call, and notice, Todd, we've been going back and forth between vocation call and estate, but one of my goals in this book is to relate the two concepts, and they have to be related. I think if we overemphasize vocation without mentioning a state, we have a problem and vice versa. But when we do keep them connected, then we understand that when the vertical call Christ comes to us and, and the light of Christ shines upon us, we receive Christ. We are 
as Luther said, baked into Christ in our holy baptism. We're permeated with his light. We are now luminaries of Christ. We are children of light. That's how we're identified. But this is not just ethereal, metaphoric language. It's language that means we are now led to live in Christ in such a way that what we do reflects him. What we say reflects him. Our emphasis upon the neighbor, which goes against the cultural hyper-individualism, becomes a good works which serve unconditionally, living out, love your neighbors, love your enemies, love those who persecute you. And in doing that, that vertical call starts to translate into our horizontal calls within the three estates. You say that the, that vertical call of God changes who we are. What do you mean? Yeah, absolutely. And it's important that we maintain in, in our, our Lutheran confession this does not in any way, shape, or form mean that the sinful nature or the flesh is changed. It stinks up the place as much as ever before. It's just as atrocious and terrible and rebellious today as it was before we were baptized or came to the knowledge of the truth. However, while that remains, and in fact, if anything, within the Christian life and Christian maturing, we become even more aware of it, not less aware of it. At the same time, there is a change in that something else is introduced that was not there before. And that is being born from above. Uh, this is what Paul's getting at in 1 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. That is to say, we now have not only the old man, but now also the new man. So the vertical call that receives Christ, the light of Christ, the word of Christ in our lives, introduces a new creation within us. And according to the new man, just as the old man can do nothing but sin, the new man can do nothing but glorify God in his or her life. How does the vertical call of God change our focus? It gets back to the your first question about sanctification. I mentioned extra nos. It teaches us that we're always looking outward. Our proper relationship to the Lord is to behold him, to look outward, uh, not to look at ourselves, not to look at our progress in, in good works or our prayer life or what have you. Instead, we look out, we adore him. We see him as he comes to us in the sacred invocation as we rem remember our baptism. We see him in divine service as the pastor proclaims the holy absolution, forgiving us all our sins. We see him as he comes in the proclamation of law and gospel in the sermon. And we see him when he comes to us outside of us in the holy sacrament as we are given and we receive the body and blood of Christ for the forgiveness of sins. So what the vertical call trains us to do is to keep looking out. And yeah, it, by definition, to be a Christian means you're in Christ. It, it means you're always in Christ. At the same time, we are always calling out to God that Christ would be received over and over again. <laughs> Getting back to some of the conversations we've had over the last 20 years and some of the other themes, you've asked me, what do we mean that over and over again? Ambrose in the confession says that because I always sin, I always need the medicine. And so we, we are always focused outward to receive Christ. And, and I think a good example of this, Todd, is the value that we place in the Holy Crucifix. 
whether it's a processional crucifix in the sanctuary at church or one we put on our wall or one we have hanging around our neck. So we look upon it. We look outward and we look upon it and we're reminded of the Lord Jesus who comes to us poor sinners. So our focus is considerably changed now from being internal to external. This is exactly what we need in a culture that's dying of hyper-individualism. So when we get this focus right, then we take it to the next step. We're trained to look outside of ourselves at our neighbor for sanctification, not internally. Dr. Alfonso Espinosa is our guest, author of the Issues Etc. book of the month, Faith That Shines in the Culture. We're talking about sanctification in the family, the state, and the church. We'll return to those three estates next. Right now, many churches are planning their budgets for the next fiscal year. You can promote your confessional Lutheran church and support the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc. by becoming a congregational sponsor. When your church pledges $1,000, we'll publicize your congregation on the podcast, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal. Learn more on the support donate page at issuesetc.org. Don't miss your congregation's budget deadline. Become an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor. Join Lutherans for Life and Why for Life in Washington, D.C., Thursday, January 18th through Saturday, January 20th for the 2024 Why for Life Free Conference. Registration is open through December 15th. Learn more at why4life.org. Great events, speakers, and social time. The 2024 Why for Life Free Conference, January 18th through the 20th in Washington, D.C., Y4Life.org. Holy Cross Evangelical Lutheran Church, Albany, Oregon, is a mid Willamette Valley LCMS congregation where the liturgy lives and God's people worship as one with sound biblical doctrine, weekly communion, and a clear confession of Christ crucified for the sin of the world. Please join us at 2515 Queen Avenue Southeast. Or visit our website at www.holycrosslutheranalbany.org. Concordia University Chicago invites all high school students to attend the annual Careers for Christ weekend in person on our beautiful campus in River Forest. Careers for Christ is November 3rd through the 5th. You'll have the opportunity to learn about professional church vocations while having fun with CUC staff, faculty, and students. For more information, visit cuchicago.edu forward slash c the number four, C. That is cuchicago.edu forward slash C, the number four, C. Equipping the priesthood of all believers, you're listening to Issues Etc. You may be one of those pastors who need to be refreshed and refueled because of your parish ministry. Issues Etc. regular guest, Dr. Charles Geeshan. Concordia Theological Seminary has a wonderful program, not only in continuing education during the summer, but in a advanced study program called the Doctor of Ministry. And it's a very practical program because it focuses on congregational ministry. It incorporates biblical theology with the ministry of the congregation. It's also very accessible for pastors, and it's also affordable. You can major in pastoral care and leadership, teaching and preaching, or mission and culture. And we pray that pastors will take advantage of this program. Learn more about the Doctorate of Ministry program at ctsfw.edu or by calling 1-800-481-2155. 
Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Welcome back. We're talking about sanctification in the family, the state, and the church. Dr. Alfonso Espinosa is our guest. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. Dr. Espinosa, what's the relationship between our horizontal calls, as you call them, and those three estates, the family, the state, and the church? Yeah, this is a great question because uh, sometimes the horizontal call can be perceived as kind of this fiat event. It happened on this day and hour, and I've got the date on my baptismal certificate. For me, it was September 18th, 1965, when I was baptized. And so, boom, I've got the horizontal call now. Now it's on to the rest. Let's just get to the rest of the story. But that vertical call, which, by the way, I was describing just now, I know vertical and horizontal comes up a lot, but please follow my progress here. That vertical call is something that is a constancy for us because we're always receiving through the Word and Sacrament Jesus Christ. Then from there, we are always then going outward in our horizontal calls to know that the reason we have these horizontal calls in the world is so that that light of Christ would be shared with others. Well, the next question is, where and when? Well, thanks be to God. Our Lord answers that question by setting up and establishing these estates of family, church, and state. This is where I grant vocation horizontally to operate. This is where I will be working through you, and the light of Jesus will be permeating and being seen and experienced through your service to others within the three estates. We can't be willy-nilly about where this happens. You know, we, we can't say, yeah, I'm going to live out my horizontal calls by hiding in a cave. No, they must take place in the three estates because these are the places where the Lord has placed us. What do we need to know about our vocations within the family? So it's a great question, and one of the main points we make in the book along the way, we try to explain that the three vocations, as I mentioned before, are permeated by this fourth vocation, which we refer to as the spiritual estate or the estate of love. And that is always agape love. Having said that, that agape love will be manifest or experienced differently depending upon the context of the particular vocation. So, for example, within the family vocation, we are, as fathers, let's take the example of father, we are demonstrating a special manifestation of agape love according to the Word of God in application to the family. We are spiritual leaders. We are spiritual heads. We are to catechize our children. We are to lovingly discipline in the spirit and the teaching of Hebrews chapter 12. Also talk about Bonhoeffer's reference of fathers in his book, Ethics. He refers to them as the deputies of his children. Part of that cross that we bear as Christian fathers is to feel and absorb the pain of our children as we're raising them and protecting them and trying to keep them from being harmed. But sometimes they are harmed and we can feel that pain with them. But the Holy Spirit uses this in a very good way in that as we empathize and with compassion and empathy and sympathy, we not only come alongside our children, but we bear them up as they're going through their hardships. 
I can keep going down the line. You know, what does a Christian mother do? What does a Christian child do? And when it comes to, I'll switch over to children. In the large catechism, Luther has a lot to say in explicating the fourth commandment that children are not only called to demonstrate this agape love, but they're also called to honor their parents. So even if we get to a situation growing up where we say, you know what, mom and dad, they're just wrong about that. They're literally mishandling the information. Well, guess what? You need to honor them anyway. And and, uh, we tell some anecdotes in the book about how I personally experienced that. But all in all, what's going on always is a particular cross within the family estate, which as a result emanates and demonstrates agape love in the unique ways that come within the sphere or the estate of the family. How should we understand our place in the civil realm then? Well, there again, we want to look at the unique aspects of the civil realm and spend some time here that I think is very important in the book. I guess where I'll go with that is just a reminder that we have a hard time seeing the civil realm as being spiritual. Remember, spiritual, secular for all three estates. How can it be spiritual when it has so many problems, just wrought with so much sin and evil? And over 32 years as a pastor, listening to my dear parishioners, uh, just kind of bemoaning what we see within the civil realm, signs of darkness everywhere we, we look. However, there are many, many accounts in Holy Scripture how the Lord is in complete control of the civil realm and how we are called to pray for our leaders regardless of their political platforms, how we are called to remember Christ, who reminded Pontius Pilate that he would have no power over, over him at all unless it was given to him from above. When we see and, and consider, as I do in the book, the leadership of the Caesars, who were just corrupt and depraved, and yet the Lord unhesitatingly said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and I'm not worried about it. I'm still in control. So our place, Todd, kind of get to your question, is to know that we live confidently in the civil realm. We don't go out into the civil realm like, oh, this is a place where everything's out of control. No, we confess the Lord's completely in control, and that's going to affect the way we treat other people as we stand for Jesus Christ. The other thing is, the second point, we do the work we're called to do. And we do it confidently. We understand precisely because agape love is manifest in different ways that a Christian judge is doing his work in the civil realm by putting down that gavel and saying guilty, and you've got to go to prison. Even while as a Christian man, he hates to see the neighbor have to suffer and will pray for that neighbor that he is convicting as a judge, but he unhesitatingly does his work according to his responsibilities within the civil realm. And then thirdly, The last point I'll mention about the civil realm is to see, besides everything being God working through even those who do not know him, as he did through Cyrus the Great, and are just doing our jobs, then the civil realm, we get to participate, what I argue for in understanding the estates. We don't have time to get into this, but I'll just give you a quick summary that we have some insights from God's word to understand that the family estate acts as kind of the heart of the culture. So where you know, we know the culture's character, if you will, whereas the church acts as the culture's conscience, teaching the family and teaching the state what is right and what is wrong. And now getting to the state is like the mind. 
and at this point, now we're acting how we're going to live out in the world. Well, this third point then means, as Christians, we get to remind the state that it needs to protect and stand up for the family and the church. What are the vocations that God has given in the church? Uh, Many. And one of the things I'm arguing for in this book is that church membership, as we often refer to it today simply as a membership, like, I'm on the rolls, I'm a member, is actually being a member of the body of Christ. According to 1 Corinthians 12, even the least conspicuous member is indispensable to the church, to the body, which is to say a devout Christian who belongs to a local congregation has within that congregation a spiritual vocation and a secular vocation and helping to address the needs and the practical ways of the church. But we always carry that identity with us. I am advocating that when we go out into our daily lives and family and the state, that we so much identify with our local congregation that that is affecting everything we do as Christians, always connecting it back to our home base for worshiping the Lord Jesus in spirit and truth. And so that is a major vocation. And it helps us be in tune to how can I serve in the congregation? What is my hat? What is my body part? You know, if we go to the 1 Corinthians 12 analogy, and how do I encourage my pastor and shine a light upon him to encourage his work for us? How do I encourage my fellow Christians and all the more as the day of Jesus approaches? And as we're going down the list of all these things, we see that membership in a local congregation is a full-time vocation. We are to take care of it accordingly. Dr. Alfonso Espinosa is our guest. Christian sanctification in the family, the state, and the church is our topic. I'm Todd Wilkin. You're connected to issues, etc. The Magnificat, Good News of Great Joy, Madonna and Child, these are just a few of the Christmas greeting cards offered by Ad Crusum. These cards boldly proclaim the birth of the Savior of the world. AdCrusum.com, A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M.com. When we return, how does he respond to some Christians who shy away from engagement with the culture because they think it's culture wars? How can Christians live out their faith in the church, the family, and the government? Find out in the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for November, Faith That Shines in the Culture. It's written by regular guest Dr. Alfonso Espinosa. Learn more about Faith That Shines in the Culture at issuesetc.org or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. Faith That Shines in the Culture, the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for November. 
Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your service. Our church loves and is grateful for those that serve our country. Operation Barnabas, part of Ministry to the Armed Forces, equips you to reach out to veterans in your community to bring Christ to those that served. Call Ministry to the Armed Forces at 314-996-1337 or email lcmschaps at lcms.org. Thank you for your service. Thank you. God bless our military. Educating a new generation of Lutherans, you're listening to Issues Etc. Not everyone is comfortable with new technology. Dial-A Podcast gives all generations of your congregation an easy way to hear your sermons or even devotionals and Bible studies. Once you've completed a simple one-time setup, we take care of the rest. All your congregants have to do is dial the number from any phone to listen to your latest podcast, all at no additional cost to them. Dial-A Podcast. Extend the reach of your sermons. Get started at dialapodcast.com now. In this wonderful month of thankfulness, we thought it would be a great time to say a huge thank you to Pastor Todd Wilkin, Jeff, and their team. For almost 10 years, they have opened their broadcasts to Ad Crucem and allowed us to share our products with their listeners. Thank you to Issues Etc. And thank you, dear listeners, for all your support and patronage over these years. God bless you from Ad Crucem. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M dot com. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. We're talking about Christian sanctification in the family, the state, and the church with Dr. Alfonso Espinosa. Dr. Espinosa, some Lutherans shy away from engagement with the culture as mere culture war stuff. How do you respond to that? Yeah, that's a huge problem. We can't shy away. Again, the Lord has mandated these estates. To shy away from any of them is to commit a grievous sin. We're denying his mandates, his appointed estates. So we're supposed to be in these, and we're supposed to be active in them. Now, certainly, I think we maintain a good balance. We are not totally passive, and obviously, we're not going to enter a monastery and go into a desert somewhere. And by the way, if we did, sin would still follow us. We're not going to do that, and we're not going to be hyperactivists who impress the rest of the world as being obnoxious and militant. Let's put up our dukes and fight, which doesn't, by the way, represent the Lord Jesus very well. But we do maintain a balance. Again, getting to the main, the main focus of the book, we shine in the culture. And so what we're going to do is shine the light of Jesus upon the many needs that the culture has and show those who are against Christ and against the Ten Commandments, against the God-given conscience he's given us to know the difference between right and wrong, we're going to engage them. This is I think you might see the progression in the trilogy at this point, Todd, from faith that sees through the culture, which was written to give confidence to Christians as they live in the world, then to faith that engages the culture. Now that we're out there more confidently, how do we engage for the gospel when we speak to those who are without Christ? And now this third book, we're shining wherever we are, knowing that we are to be actively engaging, living in that confidence of the gospel but also serving, serving the people in our culture. 
why would you do that? <laughs> I'm an agnostic. I'm an atheist. I'm a whatever. Why would you do that? I do that because I serve the living God who loves you. So I do too. So the last way I want to represent this attitude is by using culture war language. What we're doing is uh, culture healing, culture bridging for the sake of the gospel. Let's talk a little bit more about that darkness. Uh, the culture grows increasingly hostile, explicitly hostile toward Christianity and the church. Do you think that, first of all, congregations need to spend more time together in addition to the two hours on Sunday morning as mutual consolation in the midst of that hostility? Well, there's no doubt about it. I think, Todd, I have the privilege of serving as a chair for the Board for National Mission. I, I just got back from St. Louis, spent some quality time with President Harrison and Kevin Robson, our CMO, and others. And we're talking a lot about church planning, all the things God has given to us. And I, I bring that up because when we discuss church planning, we see the seven marks of the church as being indispensable to what we do. And that is to say, we are immersed in the means of grace. We are completely conscientious of the Holy Cross that we bear as a people of God. But this is where the book comes in. What is that Holy Cross? These are not self-appointed crosses. These are crosses that we sign up for as we serve in love to bear the burdens of the people around us. Certainly Galatians talks about that, bear one another's burdens in application to the people of God within the church. But it's also applicable to even those in the culture. So what I'm saying is, is not only should we be gathering in those seven marks to be fed more often in word and sacrament, the means of grace, but we should be focused more often on serving the people in the world who need desperately to see the light of Christ. One of the things I do as a result of this current question you've asked me, go on Amazon. I mean, this is not an Amazon plug. I'm just, this is where I find this. This is a medallion. It's about the size of an old silver dollar or so. I'm holding one of them right now. They're absolutely beautiful. And on the full armor of God, there's a figure uh, dressed as a knight holding a sword and a shield with a, a red cross on the shield. And it reminds us of those six pieces of armor that are listed in Ephesians chapter six. And so what one of the things we're encouraging in answering your question is to see yourself getting dressed every day in the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the shoes that are fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, the shield of faith and, and the sword of the spirit and wrapping all of these in prayer. And so, yes, to receive more often the means and then to serve more often in the appointed ways God has given us to serve with his full armor and the fruits of the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5, to 23, for example, we must be immersed in these. And that's exactly how we respond. When we see increasing darkness, we don't up and run because, oh no, you know, it's getting worse. Much to the contrary. We're being called to be immersed into the light. And by doing that, we can effectively meet the increasing darkness. I have nothing to worry about because we don't have a Manichaean theology of one devil on one shoulder, an angel on the other, and they're doing tug of war. We have the Christ who has bound Satan and crushed his head, has won the war. And so with that confidence, we increase our reception of light, we increase our reflecting of light, and we hear the words of Jesus all the while, have no fear, little flock, your Father is pleased to give you the kingdom. Is that increased hostility 
toward Christianity, can it in fact serve as a further call into that culture because the culture needs light more now than ever before? Well, I think it has to be. It's a great question. You know, when our Lord looked upon the crowds, uh, describes them as having compassion. His heart was going out to them because they were sheep without a shepherd. (laughs) We are the little Christ, right? Luther calls us little Christ. We're the little Christ. And as I've written elsewhere, the three words that should be very important to the Christian, we see needs and we should engage in compassion. Our hearts should be extended. We can feel our innards being turned because we see the great need. And that drives us to empathy, that that second step. I'm going back to the second book and sharing this. Now we, we want to get into other people's shoes. We want to feel what they feel. We want to be sincere about joining them as much as we possibly can. And then finally, a sympathy, which is a a carrying of the cross, a bearing their burden, a bearing the cross with them. And yes, yes, yes. When we see the increase and we see the, the need, the greater need, this should spur us into action as the church. And uh, this is what Jesus loves to do. And, you know, I think it's from a world's perspective, the world would think, oh, you know, we're, fi- we're finally going to silence these Christians or we're going to shut them up. They're going to see that they're outgunned. And then they see us coming back with confidence. I think this is what's behind First Peter 3.15, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks for the hope that's within you and do it with gentleness and respect. We're just not going to get riled up. We're going to keep coming back. Where the world sees that, in many cases, their jaws will drop. We just can't stop these guys. Right now, I have a, the image of Blandina, an ancient martyr in the church, and she is lauded in Josephus, the history of the martyrs. And they kept trying to take her down in so many different ways. And they were at their wits' end and could not believe how God kept lifting her up to get back on her feet. She just wouldn't stop. And we know this is from the strength and the power of God. He supplies that strength as we continue to get back to his word. Finally, with about a minute here, how should we rightly understand how God sanctifies us? So, in our Lutheran theology, we recognize that justification being declared righteous on account of Christ through the Word occurs when He creates faith in us through the means of grace so that we're holding to Christ. And in our theology, what happens simultaneous to that is our sanctification. They happen at the same time. At the same time, well, there's no chronological distinction or temporal distinction because they both, again, happen at the same time. There is both a theological and logical distinction. Sanctification must follow justification. And if you switch it, you're in a lot of trouble. You're going to lose your confidence of your salvation if if you dare switch it. It can never be switched. So having said all of that, we rightly understand how God sanctifies us by always getting back to our justification, which is always first in order. We are declared righteous in Christ. We're declared righteous in Christ. In my first book that you graciously interviewed years ago, my goal in all three of these, Todd, has been to take our pristine theology, our sacred theology, which I've loved and continue to love so much, just digging in can never get enough of it, but to translate it to the people in the pew, the everyday guy, and to make it real 
And so repentance, what is metanoia, repentance? And I offered the, the five C's. Conviction, it's the work of the Holy Spirit, leading to godly sorrow or contrition, always leading to confession. And we know from 1 John 1, 8 to 9, that leads to consolation, the absolution. And then, Todd, I added a fifth C, and that fifth C is consecration. Consecration to rise up every single day, go forth and serve the Lord, and get back to what we understand from AP4 about good works, the battle of Christ, his active righteousness in and through his people. We've got work to do. Let's go and do it. That's how we understand how God sanctifies us. Dr. Alfonso Espinosa is senior pastor at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Irvine, California, and author of the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for November, Faith That Shines in the Culture. You can purchase this book at our website, issuesetc.org, or by calling Concordia Publishing House, 1-800-325-3040. Ask for the Issues Etc. Book of the Month, Faith That Shines in the Culture. Dr. Espinosa, thank you. Thank you, Todd. Friday on Issues Etc., we'll continue our series, Kids Have Questions, with Pastor Jonathan Connor, and we'll discuss Christian Crusaders with Raymond Ibrahim, author of Defenders of the West, the Christian Heroes Who Stood Against Islam. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for listening. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc., Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio.